All right, we are back. Let's expand upon some good news, shall we? We have a report from the B, which is a repeat of the uh, Aaron Kinney piece in the San Mateo County Times, Dateline Half Moon Bay, which notes that Japanese radioisotopes are not lurking in the sand of Miramar Beach. Evidently, the California Department of Public Health has issued a final report confirming what its own preliminary analysis and independent studies had shown, which is that radiation at the beach stems from naturally occurring elements in the sand and does not pose a threat to human health. This apparently came in response to a video done earlier in the year titled Fukushima Radiation Hits San Francisco. It depicted a man walking along the ocean just north of Half Moon Bay with a beeping Geiger counter. Well, the studies seem to show that is natural radiation and not something that is washed in from Japan. Speaking of radioactive elements from Japan, that's a segue that we seldom get to use. It turns out that the government of Japan is now letting the United States assume control of its nuclear stockpile. Apparently earlier this week, Japan uh, launched plans to take 700 pounds of weapons-grade plutonium and a large quantity of highly enriched uranium and give it to Washington. The announcement is described as the biggest single success in President Barack Obama's five-year push to secure the world's most dangerous nuclear materials. One of Obama's major political goals has been to stop the production of new supplies of nuclear materials. And at the last nuclear security summit two years ago, he said, we simply can't go on accumulating huge amounts of the very material, like separated plutonium, that we're trying to keep away from terrorists. Makes sense to us. Something else that makes sense to us, and is probably going to be good news once it happens, is the fact that, uh, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, the writing is on the wall for prime farmland down in the San Joaquin Valley. Piece by Carolyn Lockhead notes that even before the drought, the southern San Joaquin Valley was in big trouble. Decades of irrigation of leached salts and toxic minerals from the soil that have nowhere to go. They threaten crops and wildlife. Aquifers there are being drained at an alarming pace. More than 95% of the area's native habitat has been destroyed by cultivation or urban expansion. Federal studies long ago concluded the only sensible solution is to retire hundreds of thousands of acres of this farmland. Now we should note that uh, the majority of the problems with this land is on the west side of the San Joaquin Valley. This has been a pretty much dry landscape over the millennia. And when it was finally watered and turned into farmland, a lot of stuff leached out of the soil. This piece notes that in 2006, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says that, said that despite hundreds of millions of federal dollars spent over two decades, no technological solution has been found to dispose of drain water. Enormous amounts of salt and selenium, which is toxic to birds, also other wildlife and humans, continues to accumulate each year. This is sad in some ways, but long overdue. This land should not probably have been ever farmed, at least in some instances, and letting it go fallow is, is, is good news. And something else that is, I think, long overdue and in some ways spectacularly good news is the fact that, according to the New York Times, chickens and crop fields are becoming must-have amenities in America's suburbs. Reportedly, across the U.S., buyers are snatching up homes in developments that showcase farmland where a golf course might have been and farm stands 
instead of fitness centers. About a dozen such developments are currently in the works from Kansas to California. Roughly a dozen now thriving such communities put down their roots before 2008's market crash. Finding this harmonious balance between um, living space and open land you can grow food on is uh, something I'm glad is finally on the radar. Having grown up in the East Bay when there was a happy balance between um, housing developments here and there and open land such as that owned by my grandpa where apricots, cherries, pears were grown or behind the family homestead where our neighbor Mr. Namora grew acres and acres of strawberry fields was a wonderful balance to have. Unfortunately, there's been insufficient effort to preserve open farmland around urban and suburban regions. There, there are some tax breaks people get, but for the most part, evil developers come in, buy up the land, build on it, and that's that. Although I confess in talking about this to have been very remiss in tracking down someone I've been wanting to interview for about the last, I don't know, seven or eight years, one of my former neighbors back in Fremont, Sal. Sal has kept his land open. He grows various crops on it like corn. He has a, uh, a fresh produce stand there that does a land office business. And I certainly enjoy walking over there and seeing the land as it used to be. It didn't used to be two-story houses everywhere. For this correspondent, one of the most horrible aspects of modern life is that in a suburban area, an attractive area to live in many respects, this sort of thing just evolves. It does so from a combination of uh, insufficient laws and, in my opinion, some of the worst weasels you can think of gaming the system. We've taken a pretty strong position on this program over the years against real estate developers because although we do need a certain amount of development to have a healthy economy, from what I've seen, California has been trashed by development. I don't think I'm going to bother to give a Jackass of the Week award this week to anybody, but uh, if I did, it would be the new Honda dealership, which has been slapped up right next to Highway 80 down in Vacaville. They've decided to light this car lot uh, with a sufficient um, wattage, I think, to be seen from the moon. I mean, if you drive by at night, your eyes are actually, you know, partially blinded by this thing. From what I can see, it's an actual hazard to driving. And yet, building a road and then developing the hell out of all the land next to the road seems to be business as usual in California. And I'm glad to see it's finally, finally getting a rethink. Something else that might also deserve a rethink as related to, uh, well, some congratulations we first want to extend to the Sacramento Bee. Since the publication of the Bee series by lead reporters Cynthia Hubert and Philip Reese, about patient dumping from Nevada here in California. Legislators increase funding for mental health. Well, that'll help a little. And reports the B, Governor Brian Sandoval created a special council to review the state's mental health care system and make recommendations for improvements. <laughs> don't, don't, don't hold your breath. But although we applaud the B and reporters Hubert and Reese for their efforts, the greater question is, what are we going to do about the Homeless dumping taking place all over the area, not just from Nevada mental hospitals. Our state capitol is currently putting out the welcome mat for transients, hobos, 
people with substance abuse problems, and folks for whom mental health is an issue. This is a thorny problem, to be sure. But it appears to this correspondent that Sacramento, like Santa Monica, Santa Cruz, and a few other homeless-friendly spots in the state, is starting to realize is that there needs to be some limits to the community's generosity. And by the way, when it comes to funding solutions to the problems we have in America, it has seemed to us that the great mother load of funds to be tapped into lies with the military. The Pentagon has long had a plan to be able to fight two wars simultaneously, and they certainly put that into practice with Iraq and Afghanistan, <laughs> the latter of which is still an ongoing circus. But uh, Chuck Hagel, our defense secretary, and others apparently are finally stepping forward to rein these grandiose plans in and cut the budget. A couple weeks back, some Pentagon officials on condition of anonymity told the New York Times that um, the current plans will be for a military capable of defeating any adversary but too small to carry out protracted foreign occupations. Well, we think it's high time that thinking started going along those lines, although in reading the story about this, I had to stop. But in reading about this, I had to stop and realize, boy, there's a lot of political horse trading going on here. Apparently under Hegel's proposals, the entire fleet of Air Force A-10 attack aircraft designed to destroy Soviet tanks in the event of an invasion of Western Europe, would be eliminated. Well, I think that Soviet invasion is never going to happen. But from my understanding, forces on the ground are always happy to have the A-10s in the air because they actually can interact with the troops that are on the ground, as opposed to our really fast uh, whiz-bang jets like the F-35 warplanes which are very expensive and run into cost delays and which seems to be what the military plans to replace the A-10s with. Speaking of military hardware, they're apparently giving the tank a rethink. Piece uh, by Marjorie Senzer in the Washington Post, February of this year, notes that uh, tanks are something of a relic. The Army has about 5,000 of them sitting idle or awaiting an upgrade. But it notes that for BEA Systems in York, Pennsylvania, keeping the armored vehicle in service means keeping jobs. Noting that, and jobs, after all, are what their representatives in Congress are working to protect in their home districts. Apparently, military officials say they've given careful thought to their strategy and they simply can't afford to pay for more tank upgrades. But the Army has run up against congressional opposition. To keep those lines running, Congress has allocated well more than the Army requested for the programs. An extra $181 million for the Abrams tank in fiscal 2013 and about $140 million more for the Bradley personnel carrier. The sad truth is that an awful lot of what we spend for our military has to do with the paychecks that go to the contractors, more than it has to do with any strategy or what makes sense for us as a nation. And boy, is this not a new story. I mentioned Ike's Bluff earlier in the broadcast, uh, the book by Evan Thomas, subtitled President Eisenhower's Secret Battle to Save the World. And I think the world 
did not appreciate then and still doesn't fully appreciate now is the steps Eisenhower had to take to rein in his own military. Because nobody had more credibility in the military than Eisenhower, he was able to accomplish things that subsequent presidents did not do so well. Thomas's book gives some fascinating illustrations of this uh, behind-the-scenes battle. A lot of folks were arguing in the 50s that there was a bomber gap. The Soviet Union had this incredible fleet of bombers arrayed to drop atom bombs all over America, and then America needed to keep up, needed to have its own bomber force that was the equal of the Soviets. Eisenhower had his doubts about all of this but faced a lot of pressure from the right to go ahead and build, build, build. To quote from the book, referring to spring of 1956, on Capitol Hill, two powerful Democratic senators, Stuart Symington and Washington's Henry Scoop Jackson, were rumbling about the bomber gap. Eisenhower suspected that the bomber gap was exaggerated, if not myth, but he needed proof. Otherwise, he'd be forced to spend hundreds of millions more on building B-52s. It gnawed at the president that he knew so little about the Soviets' capabilities and intentions. So it was that he was attracted by this new secret aircraft, the U-2, which could overfly the Soviet Union and photograph their military installations. Eisenhower would wind up okaying some of these overflights, despite some reservations, To quote from a few pages later in the book, sometime in July, it's not clear when, YouTube briefings were not recorded on the presidential calendar, Richard Bissell brought Eisenhower a blown-up intelligence photograph on a large poster board. The U-2 had flown over Soviet airbases without finding more than a handful of their bison bombers. The Air Force had estimated that the Soviets already owned at least 100 bisons, The president's skepticism had been confirmed by just five days of aerial reconnaissance. They had only a handful. The bomber gap was a myth. But as it would turn out, just two years later, Eisenhower had to defend himself again from a gap, in this case, the alleged missile gap between our capabilities and that of the Soviets. I was particularly knocked out by Chapter 20 of Ike's Bluff that uh, talked about the details of the missile gap. It turned out that uh, it all started with a New York Herald Tribune column in August of 1958 by Joseph Alsop. Alsop, citing anonymous but highly placed sources in the government, predicted that a year in the future the Soviets would have 100 ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, but the U.S. would have zero. Alsop wrote that they were shuddering over at the Pentagon, Shuddering, because in 1960, 61, 62, 63, the American government will flaccidly permit the Kremlin to gain an almost unchallenged superiority in the nuclear striking power that was once our specialty. And despite what Eisenhower wanted, as a result largely of the ALSUP column, over on Capitol Hill, senators voted to spend a billion more dollars than Eisenhower wanted on bombers and missiles. Of course, the total defense budget at that time was about $40 billion, but still... They just threw two extra percent on top. And here's a quote that's especially telling from the book. It's noted that although Eisenhower enjoyed an easy, bantering relationship with the White House press corps, which tended to be middle-class, regular Joe types, he wanted his staff to have nothing to do with the sophisticated columnists found at Georgetown cocktail parties. So when Eisenhower cut out guys like Joe Alsop from having special leaks being fed to them from the president, 
He found other sources like Lyndon Johnson and like Stuart Symington, Democrats who wanted to be president in 1960 and were determined to uh, take down Ike. And of course, in doing so, they were uh, making good friends with uh, what's described as the Iron Triangle, the Congressional Industrial Military Triad that drove defense budgets ever higher. We could probably do 10 shows on this very topic. But I got to say, when I look at the likes of, you know, Charles Krauthammer talking about how, you know, Obama's puny response is inspiring Vladimir Putin to take over the world, I think, well, same game, different decade. They've been doing this now for a couple of generations and probably always will. Of course, one aspect of this I find curious is that Richard Bissell, the guy who was running the U2 program for the CIA, was a guy who liked to chat up Joe Alsup as well. Did he tell Alsup that the missile gap was phony? Well, although he knew it was, he did not. Well, why not? Because Bissell knew that would keep pressure on Eisenhower to keep his U-2s flying, the risks be damned. So again, we have to return to the old adage that when you see something you can't, can't quite understand because it seems kind of crazy, well, look for someone's financial interest. Anyway, let's take a short break. But before I do, I want to thank whoever it was on Facebook that directed me to a, a quiz to assess which president you are most alike. According to this psycho study, um, after answering 50 questions, it determined that the president I was most alike was Dwight D. Eisenhower. And for any psychoanalysts out there in the listening audience who might give a damn, <laughs> I would note that like Eisenhower, yours truly was rated as above average in openness, indicating... I prefer to strike a balance between seeking out novelty and preserving the status quo. High on conscientiousness, indicating the Ike and I are focused when it comes to goals and deadlines and like to complete goals and tasks before starting new ones. We're both ranked high on extroversion, indicating you are open and talkative. But alas, we both come in below average on agreeableness, <laughs> indicating that I'm often seen as, or Ike, as the case may be, are often seen as critical, tough, and domineering in social situations. Well, just for the hell of it, I did modify my answer slightly on some of the, some of the gray area uh, questions that were posited. On the second go-around, it turned out I was most like Barack Obama. And although both President Obama and I, and for that matter, Dwight Eisenhower, both score below average on agreeableness, in the modified score, more like Obama, it was described as alternating between being tender-hearted in some situations and tough-minded in others. Well, I don't know. Maybe. It was kind of a fun quiz, my dear listener, so you may want to do it yourself at www.celebritytypes.com. And if it's correct, a trait I share with Presidents Obama and Eisenhower is that I'm low on neuroticism, indicating that I'm relaxed, cool under pressure, and not shy about presenting yourself or your ideas. And I suppose that, I think, is probably true. Mr. Mavilla is looking somewhat incredulous over the relaxed part. Well, to that I would say, if we were shy about presenting ourselves and ideas, we wouldn't be doing a radio show now, would we? And on that note, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Dwight D. Eisenhower. Or is it Barack Obama? 